thank you. My title for us this morning is simple, A Faith That Bears Fruit. A Faith That Bears Fruit. Not a faith that manufactures fruit. Not a faith that borrows somebody else's fruit. Not a faith that bears rotten fruit. But a faith that bears fruit. I believe that point deserves recognition because sometimes there are bad trees close enough to good trees and the fruit sometimes becomes confusing. It's not that that tree is a good tree, it's that that tree is in proximity to a good tree. And so sometimes we confuse a bad tree with a good tree because of the fruit that is in proximity to it. This morning what we're going to learn is that our faith and our connection to Christ has a direct correlation to the kind of fruit that we bear in our life. Now, the reason this is important is because Jesus said unequivocally and without hesitation, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears, guess what? Bad fruit. As it is with so many other things in Christianity, so it is with this principle. There is no neutral ground. It is either this way or it is that way. It is either right or it is wrong. You are either a wise person or a foolish person. It is black or it is white. That is all that there is in Christianity. Sometimes there are some angles that we can appreciate or, or an angle that, that someone else might appreciate more than us. But when it comes to the basic tenets of Christianity and whether or not one is a Christian, there's no area for negotiation because there is no neutral ground. We are either in Christ and consequently bearing good fruit, or we are not in Christ and consequently not bearing good fruit. This morning, for us and our title, A Faith That Bears Good Fruit, we have two simple points, and that is this, first of all, that Jesus is our vine, and second of all, that Christians are the branches. So let's start with our first point this morning. Jesus is the vine. If you look at chapter 15, verse 1 again, it says, I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, if your Bible is anything like mine, these pages are covered in red, which means that the publisher, in this case, Crossway, maybe you're using a Zondervan or Word publication or whatever, Bible is a Bible, although it's published by different publishers. Mine is an ESV, which I highly recommend. It's published by the Crossway publisher. They use red ink when Jesus speaks. I'll never forget, a few years ago, we were in a Bible study in a midweek night, and we had a lot of people who were very unfamiliar with Christianity. And we were going through this Bible study and asking questions and answering them, having great conversation, and someone raises their hand a half, three quarters of the way through the Bible study and says, I have a question. Great, what's your question? They go, why are these words red? Now many of you might laugh or chuckle at that because you've been raised in the church or you have so much familiarity with the Bible that you know that the publishers choose to publish the words of Jesus in red ink to distinguish them from other words. Not every Bible does that, but many of them do. 
Now, getting back to the point that I was making, if your Bible is anything like my Bible, both of these pages are covered in red. So when we get to John chapter 15 and we read, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, we're not reading the words of Peter. We're not reading the words of Thomas. We're not reading the words of anyone except those words of Jesus. And you may recall, as we've moved through the Gospel of John, that the Gospel of John contains seven I am statements. And this one is the seventh. The seven I am statements are going to come up here on the screen just to reboot your memory. It goes like this. I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. I am the light of the world in John 8, 10. I am the door of the sheep in John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd in John 10, 11. I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, 6, and this morning, John chapter 15, verse 1, the seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John, I am the true vine. Now, obviously, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, even if you're unfamiliar with Christian doctrine, you can get a glimpse of meaning from these things, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, meaning that if you want an eternal life, he is, he is the one that satisfies that. I'm the door of the sheep. In other words, you're not getting into heaven if you don't walk through the door of me. And so on and so forth. So Jesus culminates his incredible seven I am statements with this one, John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Now, vines are somewhat popular in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and this shouldn't surprise us, since the Old Testament people, as well as the New Testament people, but in particular, I think the Old Testament people were a horticultural people. They lived on the land. Psalm 80, verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Now, that might sound pretty clear to some of you, but let me give a brief explanation. This psalm, Psalm 80, verse 8, is saying to God, You brought a vine out of Egypt. In other words, the Exodus. You brought a vine out of Egypt, saved your people, and the nations that took over the promised land when, when the Israelites were not there, they were pushed out, and you planted the, van, the, the vine back where it belonged. Obviously, this reference there to the vine is referring to the Hebrew people. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard, the Lord says, they have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Obviously, Jeremiah is a prophet of doom, so to speak. There are a lot of things happening that are ungodly in the time of Jeremiah. So when he's talking about the vine, he's still talking about God's people. But in this particular case, he's talking about the negative implications of the bad teachers who are present. Amen? Look at what they have done in destroying my vineyard, God says. So, Jesus is obviously pulling on a familiar metaphor from the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. But he's also doing more. So let's break this down. I think there's three reasons Jesus employs this metaphor. First of all, before we get into these three points, are you, are you extra quiet today or is it just me? 
You're quiet today, aren't you? I feel like you're quiet today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, I forgive you the first quarter of this message. Everybody better now? We're back, in, back here, all right? Amen? Okay. First, by employing this metaphor, Jesus identifies with Israel. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, since we know that the vine was God's reference to his people, Jesus is identifying particularly with Israel. You can recall from Jeremiah's reference that the vine or the vineyard was God's reference to his people Israel. Here, by referring to himself as the vine and his father as the gardener or vine dresser, Jesus identifies with Israel, but there's more. And this is the second thing I want you to observe. By employing this metaphor, Jesus not only identifies with Israel, as we've mentioned, but he fulfills God's intention for Israel. This is paramount. We can't miss this point. Jesus not only identifies with Israel, as we would expect a Jewish male to do, But more so, he is saying in making this statement, I am the true vine, that he's not only identifying with Israel, but he is God's intention for Israel. I've mentioned these Old Testament texts, how they have various references to the vine, etc. One of those references is found in Isaiah 5. Now, I'm going to read this to you, and you can just make a note in your Bible or on your bulletin. You can go back and read it. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Isaiah is 66 chapters, not a light book, not easy to get through. Uh, Stylistically, it's challenging as well, but it is rich, rich in prophetic word. This is one of those words, and this is only from the fifth chapter. I'm going to read for you a couple of sentences. Listen to the judgment that comes from the Lord in Isaiah 5. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield only wild grapes? Sometimes sour grapes. You see, Jesus doesn't just identify with Israel in saying, I'm the vine. Furthermore, he doesn't say, I'm like the vine. You know, the Israeli people, the Hebrew people, you know, I'm like them. He doesn't say either one of those things, does he? No, he says not, I am a vine or like the vine, but he says, look at it with your eyes, 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. So first of all, Jesus identifies with Israel. We say, okay, great. But second of all, in saying that he's the true vine, he's not only identifying with Israel, but he's saying, I am the ideal that God had in mind when he made his covenant with these people. The word true sometimes is also translated genuine. I am the genuine vine. We might say that Jesus is the real article. He is everything that God ever intended Israel to be, but it failed God because of its sin, because of its idolatry, because of its worldliness, and ultimately because of its faithlessness. 
it scares me to enumerate to you the sins that Israel adopted because in 2021, as I survey the so-called church in America, I see so many of these sins. Worldliness. Idolatry of materialism. Consumerism. If I get this, then I will be happy. That's idolatry. We have in our midst, not necessarily in our midst, but we have in the midst of the church in the United States of America a tendency to be covetous, to be idolatrous, to be faithless. And as often as we look back in the Old Testament, wag our finger and go, those Jews just didn't get it, we need to remember that we are the same way, amen? We have a tendency to be guilty of the very, the very sins that we condemn in others. We excuse in ourselves. So the purpose of the metaphor is not just to be poetic. The purpose of the metaphor is for the disciples to realize that Jesus is not only an Israelite, he's not only a Hebrew, but he's the very ideal Israelite. And as he is the Messiah who always does the will of the Father, he can say, I am the true vine. You are the vine that God often references, but I am the true vine. You may be the vine that brought forth good fruit sometimes and bad fruit other times, but I am the true vine who only always does my Father's will and brings forth good fruit. RVG Tasker, which I know that sounds weird, but I don't know. In England, there are no middle names. You have three and four first names, but no middle names. So initials are common. RVG Tasker. He says this of that metaphor. He says that the metaphor, quote, implies that Israel had been an imperfect foreshadowing of what was found in perfection in Jesus. Yes. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about, yes, we see God's covenant with Israel and, and their faithfulness, but they failed and, and, and they didn't fulfill God's intention for them. Neither do we, amen? But Jesus did and Jesus does. And therefore, Jesus can say, there have been vines mentioned, but I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. So Jesus is the true vine. And the Father, our God, is the sovereign gardener. And God has his sovereign responsibilities as the gardener of the vine. And indeed, this includes the branches. This leads to our second point this morning. Jesus is the vine. But secondly, Christians are the branches. Let's read this passage one more time together. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It's a little redundant. Right? You feel like he, I feel like he's saying the same thing over and over again. He is. He is. He's being as clear and precise as he can be. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like branch, uh, like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. No doubt there's a judgment reference there. If you abide in me, though, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples on and on and on and on. So just backing up to this point now, Christians are the branches. I think this is important. What does being a branch entail? Jesus is the true vine. We've been over that. We've done our homework there. Christians are the branches. Now, what does it entail to be a branch? What does this metaphor teach us about what it means, in other words, to say it plainly, to be a Christian? Well, for one, it entails pruning and fruit-bearing pruning and fruit bearing. Now we've already read verses two through five and you can see through the language that we've read that Jesus keeps mentioning bearing fruit, bearing fruit. And if you bear fruit, God's going to prune you. We're going to get to that in a second. In fact, Jesus concludes by saying, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. In other words, Christians who are bearing fruit in their lives are bringing glory to God in that they're bearing Christian fruit. Now, the flip side of that same teaching must also be true, if that is true. If a Christian who is bearing fruit is bringing glory to God, then a Christian who is not bearing fruit is not bringing glory to God. Of course, the fruit that we're talking about isn't just any kind of fruit. Many of you have wonderful personalities, you have awesome talents, you have characteristics that make you lovable and likable and maybe even enviable. But your fruit is not what we're talking about here. If Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, which in connection to the vine means that we are connected to Jesus, right? Then we're specifically talking about Christian fruit, or we might say Christ-like fruit. A few things to consider. First, we must be connected to Christ. If we're going to bear Christ-like fruit, we must be connected to Christ. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. We've already covered it, but it doesn't hurt to say truth more than once, so let me say it. If you're not connected to Christ, you're not a Christian. To be connected to Christ means to be a Christian. There is no such thing as someone who is not connected to Christ, but is a Christian. Doesn't work that way. You might like Jesus Christ. You might think highly of Jesus Christ. But if you are not connected to Jesus Christ by faith, you're not a Christian. That's just the way it works. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. That is just a biblical fact. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you connect to me, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now listen to the language of this locale. I love it, and I don't want you to miss it. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. This is what it means to be a Christian. In the New Testament, there, the word Christian only happens, what, two times? The idea that the word Christian is what we use to describe what faith we belong to is foreign to the New Testament. When people were called Christians in the New Testament, it was a derogatory term. It was kind of an insult. Oh, you're a Christian. What the apostles used was this phraseology, in Christ. Paul would say, I know a man in Christ, which is to say, I know a man who is a Christian. I love these prepositions because they suggest to us not only where Christ can be found, but where we can be found in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Now, second, we must be connected to Christ, but also we must be imitators. We must be imitators. I know that this might sound weird in today's society. Imitation is not something that people espouse today. Today, it's all about be original. Do your own thing. See what somebody else is doing and do something else. Those are the mantras that we're constantly being sold today. But when it comes to fruitfulness, it's about duplication. When it comes to fruitfulness, it's about duplication. An apple tree produces, guess what? Apples. Constantly. It doesn't change its mind. It doesn't say, you know, ah, it's 2021, I'm going to do apples this year. It can't. Because it's an apple tree. Apple trees bear apple fruit. Orange trees bear orange fruit. And these two guys, you can plant them close together, but they don't switch. The idea here is that imitation is all about duplication. Now let me make my point. Say amen if you're listening. We're not supposed to go looking for some other kind of fruit. We look at Jesus. We see his fruit. That's the fruit we duplicate. We imitate Christ. What Christ did or didn't do, the fruit that Christ would bear for everyone to see, that is the kind of fruit we are supposed to, as Christians, duplicate. Just like a particular tree only makes that kind of fruit, we're not into this Christian Buddhism. We're not into Christian New Age. Diamond and I are watching a documentary now on Scientology. We don't do Scientology. We don't even do Christian science. That's not Christian or science. I don't know what that is. It's neither. If we are Christians, we don't bear all these different kinds of fruit. We're imitators. We're duplicators. We bear the fruit that Christ bore. That's the fruit that we bear. 
We don't look for other kind of fruit. We don't get curious and strange and I just want to explore this and dabble in that. No, that's how the enemy is invited into your life. We say, it can't be that simple. It's simple on purpose. Jesus doesn't say, I want it to be as complicated for you as you possibly can have it. He goes, look, connect to me. You'll bear my fruit. If you connect to me and bear my fruit, I will abide in you and you will abide in me and it will be good. Simple. It's simple. Imitation in Christianity is a principle by which we live out our faith. In like fashion, as I've been saying, Christ doesn't produce Christians that aren't Christ-like. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't Christ-like. We imitate him. We model ourselves after him. We follow in his footsteps. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. How good is that? Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Now, I wonder how many of us have the gall and the guts to say to someone tomorrow at work who might say, what's Christianity about? Say, follow me as I follow Christ. I would be a little nervous about saying that. But this is an apostle, it's different. Paul the apostle, in occupying the office that God called him to, namely the office of apostle, says, we don't hear anybody else ever say this, he says, if you follow me and I follow Christ, you will be imitating Christ. Now, I realize that we're a little removed, right? We're a little removed. We can read Paul, we can study Paul. I've never met Paul, you've never met Paul we have to just learn from him by his writings. But in so doing, we can get closer and closer to that likeness. Amen? Paul is not saying, put your faith in me. Paul is saying, I'm connected to Christ. And if you follow me, I'm leading you to Christ. Imitation is not about helping people bear your fruit. Christian imitation is about living so close to Christ that they see Christ's fruit in you. Amen? Now finally, Leon Morris writes, once again, obedience is the test of discipleship. Once again, obedience is the test of discipleship. In other words, if we're a disciple of Jesus, we will obey him. Finally, we must rely on the Spirit's ministry in our lives. We must rely on the Spirit's ministry in our lives. The Spirit's manifestation and activity in our lives is paramount. That means that we must remove ourselves from the equation of authority. Say, I'm not an authority. Yeah, do it. I'm not an authority. Some of you need to say this all day long. This is exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me, right? You remember that, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14. You know what happens to somebody who's on a cross, right? What happens to somebody who's on a cross? They die. Jesus is saying, if you would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. What he's saying is, is if you're going to follow me, you've got to die. 
You've got to get out of the God business. You can't be your own God. I'm going to be your God. And if you're not willing to die to yourself to live for me, don't come. You must take up your cross every day and follow me, Jesus said. The Spirit's work in our life in regards to our connection to Christ and our bearing fruit is so important because you and I need a reminder each and every day that we must remove ourselves from the equation of authority. You and me, we are not authorities on this stuff. Jesus is the authority. We must remove ourselves from the throne of heaven. We must stop being our own gods, and we must submit to the rule of God by way of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul said it very pointedly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, do not put out the fire of the Spirit. Now, if we're in Christ, if we're a branch attached to the vine, and we're Christians, and we are fruitless, or if we aren't bearing fruit the way that we ought to, what happens? Verse 2 says that God prunes us. It means to trim. It means to clean up. In other words, the natural or wild tendencies in us that we have, our natural passions, etc., aren't permitted by God the gardener. You get that? God is not going to allow us to come into his garden and grow whatever we want. God says, you're attaching to my vine, not the other way around. And I will trim you and prune you so that you bear the fruit I want you to bear the way I want you to bear it. He's the sovereign gardener, not us. He trims us, he cleans us, he prunes us so that we we grow fruit that is fitting to the vine to which we belong, which is Christ-likeness. Of course, the greatest Christian fruit of all, as Jan mentioned earlier, is love. And going to this last paragraph of our section here, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Did you get that? Imitation, duplication. You saw how I loved you. Yes. Okay, do that. Don't get creative. Don't think outside the box. We all want box. Everybody, he's an artist. He's just a free spirit. He thinks outside the box. That's dangerous, man. When they're little, it's cute. When they get older and they're homeless and don't have a job and can't be responsible adults, It's not cute anymore. Every single one of you is operating in a box. Every single one of you has boundaries placed on you by your family, by your physical restrictions or inhibitions, by by, by society, by culture. You pull out of the driveway here and you get onto Caribbean and you go down this way, you get to the turnpike overpass and the light is red, what are you going to do? Because you're in boundaries. We use this word, we all have free will. No, you don't. You have a free will, but the word free is in quotation marks. You're not free to fly, R. Kelly. I believe I can fly. You can't fly, man. I don't care what you say. There's no flying going on, right? 
When the light is red, you're going to stop. If you decide to go through that boundary that has been placed on you, someone will pull you over and remind you that you have broken a boundary that you are supposed to abide by. Physically, we have boundaries. Civilly, we have boundaries. Relationally, we should have boundaries. Now, we have a tendency to say, don't fence me in. No, fencing people in is good because when we create boundaries, when we put markers down for our marriage, for our parenthood, for our job, of course also for our Christian faith, when we see these boundaries and we pull them up and we put down boundaries, what we're doing is we're saying the bad is going to stay out there and the good is going to stay in here. Some of you are in the situation that you're in because you have no boundaries, no gate, no fencing, no nothing. You've got people coming in and out of your life and causing damage. They're just wreaking havoc on your life. And you think you're being nice by bending over backwards, lying down like a floor mat, and allowing people to mistreat you because that is something that Jesus would do. No. Do not let people mistreat you. If you let people mistreat you, that's your fault. Now, if you've got to go a second mile with somebody who's mistreating you because you can, you can see that they're going through a difficult situation and God has called you to come alongside of them and help them through that situation, then do it. But there are still boundaries there. I love what Paul says in Galatians 6. He says, a brother who stumbles into sin should be helped. Only be careful that you don't stumble too. Boundary. Amen? Jesus does not go, listen, I want you to be creative with love. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel your way through this. And, and, and the spirit, whatever that is, that's not what I believe, but just follow me here for a minute. The Spirit is going to guide you through what love is. Oh my gosh, it's nauseating. Jesus leaves no doubt in your mind or mine, unless we just want to be very argumentative with him about what kind of love he's talking about. Here's my commandment. What is it? That you love one another. Here's the boundary. Like I have loved you. Like my grandmother? No. No, not like your grandmother. Grandmothers are terrible barometers for whether or not something should be loved, acceptable, or anything else. Grandmas, we love you. Grandpas, same deal. A grandmother will let their grandchild get away with murder. You laugh because you know I'm true. He didn't mean it. It was an accident. Don't we see this happen on the news all the time, right? Nobody can do anything right because a criminal can be a criminal every single day of his life. God forbid some kind of judgment comes down on a criminal and then is like, he was a good kid. I don't know what happened. I can tell you what happened. You raised him without boundaries. No respect for authority. No respect for the opposite sex. No respect for fellow man. No respect for himself. No boundaries never leads to freedom. It leads to jail. It's a different kind of boundary. 
that's where they put people who have no boundaries. Is that where you want to go emotionally? Is that where you want to go psychologically? Is that where you want to go spiritually? Is that where you want to go physically? I think the answer to every one of those questions is a resounding no. Amen? Have the right boundaries and you will be free. Have the right boundaries and you will be free. How should I love my wife the way Jesus loves you? How should I love my husband the way Jesus loves you? How do I love this ornery kid the way Jesus loves you? How do I love the stranger on the street? Help me out. The way Jesus loves you. Now, how does Jesus love you? He doesn't tolerate your sin. He helps you get better. He equips you when you're doubtful. He encourages you when you're discouraged. And he does it sacrificially. He gave his life for you. Now, he gave his life to get back up again, right? So you don't have to go dying for anybody. Jesus did it. But what you have to do in this boundary is say, Come with me as I come with Christ. The love that we are to have and to demonstrate toward each other and toward outsiders is that same love that Christ himself demonstrated to us. I love what he says here, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What a great... I know this is probably not the first time you've heard this verse, but as often as I read it, I'm like, that's a great line. Because Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to be the best friend you've ever had.